You're listening to Indie Live Radio, and this is the beginning of another of our Yes Group Spotlight programmes. And this week, the spotlight is on Yeston Bar. Uh, we're very grateful to them for giving us permission to, first of all, record and now broadcast their event. The speaker is Karen van Sweden, who set up Modern Money Scotland. She'll give a short presentation, followed by question and answers from the group. And the event is called The Importance of a Scottish Currency. Hope you enjoy this. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to uh, this evening's talk from Yes Dunbar. Uh, my name is Chris Thacker. I am co-chair of, of uh, the Yes Dunbar group. Uh, we've been running a series of online talks um, throughout the autumn um, and uh, today I'm particularly pleased to welcome along Karen Van Sweden um, from Modern Money Scotland Think Tank. Uh, Karen is uh, going to talk to us a little bit about modern money theory um, and uh, uh, the media scaremongering and uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, as I said before, this talk is getting recorded for Independence Live Radio, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing it back in full at that when that's broadcast. Um, so, Modern Money Scotland is an economic think tank which aims to progress the heterodox economic thinking from a Scottish perspective. Modern Money Scotland argues that sovereign national accounting cannot be compared with either household or business budgeting and that the concept of balancing the books does not apply to the monopoly issuer, issuer of a currency. Their goal is to change both the language and the debate around our national economics and to deploy, develop policy which can encourage greater economic well-being in Scotland, refocusing the debate towards the wealth of real resources that Scotland has available. Their director, Karen Van Sweden, um, is, uh, uh, and we had a little chat about this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, um, Karen? You're an anatomical scientist to trade, which I think is absolutely fascinating for someone who, who has developed an interest in economics, and perhaps we'll come onto that a bit later. Um, you're currently studying economics in Spanish. You are the co-convener of Leith SNP uh, and of uh, Edinburgh North Yes Group. Uh, Edinburgh North and Leith. Uh, you are bilingual. Um, you're a bookkeeper, and uh, and you um, your your surname is from marrying a Dutchman. Um, and with that, what I will do is hand over to yourself and uh, Yes Dunbar Secretary Gareth is at the controls of, of the presentation. So it's maybe worthwhile saying I should maybe do a little introduction before the presentation and just say, um, yeah, I am a, an independence activist. Um, I am, I've just actually given up my convenership of Leith SNP um, because I am just getting too busy now and I am moving to Aberdeen. So, um, and the, uh, I co-convene for Yes Edinburgh North Leith 
and I've also recently taken on the role of um, Lothian coordinator for the SNP Commonweal group as well. Um, so that's some other things that I'm involved in too. The uh, Modern Money Scotland actually started off as MMT Scotland and um, as, a, as an activist, I realised that for a lot of people who were no's, it was really the economics that were, was the problem for them. And that was why I decided to go off and start researching the economics, both because I wanted to try, try and persuade the no's, be better at persuading the no's, and also because people round about me were also asking me to stand as a candidate for the SNP. And I felt that if I was going to really seriously think about doing that, I'd have to understand how... Um, national accounting worked. So that was really why um, I, I got involved in learning about the economics of how independence would work. But uh, along the journey, I have to say, I learned some things which I, I was less pleased to learn. Um, but yeah, I've learned them anyway. So I'll, I'll maybe share with those tonight. So yes, we start, this started off as MMT Scotland. And that was how I met the other activists within the S and SNP who were also interested in the economics. So with that, can I maybe present the, I've just got 10 slides, so um, I hope it's not going to bore you. <laughs> so we'll give that a go now, shall we? So why Modern Money Scotland? So the reason I decided to start Modern Money Scotland with the other activists involved was because after the election, I realized that there, there really was um, a huge democratic deficit, um, a skewing of democracy more um, because I, I saw an interview with Lisa Nandy and Andrew Marr and she was talking about how she saw a little old lady who would have voted for her manifesto, for the Labour manifesto. The little old lady didn't want to vote for the manifesto because she was afraid of the debt and she wanted the government to pay the debt down. Um, then soon after lockdown, within a couple of weeks, the mainstream media started to talk about how they, it was going to be absolutely necessary to have more austerity um, after, after COVID has been solved. And from the learning that I've done, I understand that that's just complete nonsense. And not only that, austerity for the past 10 years has killed people. Many people have taken their lives and people have died in their houses from cold and hunger um, in the fifth largest economy in the world. So I know that none of this needs to happen. So I started to get really concerned about this narrative. And I, I asked the other members let's do something about this. We have to form some sort of active group and we have to start lobbying as a group and try and get more of our, our um, MPs and MSPs to understand this so that they can lobby more effectively as well. And also um, people within the independence movement have more of an understanding of why they don't need to be afraid to talk about having their own currency um, and, you know, the likes of... Um, David Mundell, after the last SNP conference, when we talked about this, talking about chocolate, chocolate money, which was really insulting. So I really wanted to debunk a lot of those myths and also just try and stop austerity from happening again as well. Um, so I'm hoping with this presentation, and if I keep doing these presentations, that this will provide tools in the activist toolbox. That's what I'm hoping to get from this. So can I go into the next slide now? 
So the next slide is just to show you the, the board of directors. So as you can see, you probably know Dr. Tim Rideout. Um, he is a hero as far as I'm concerned. I have told him that. Um, Andrea, who is an economist, and also Craig Berry. He's responsible for starting up Modern Money Scotland with me as well. He had to take a step back as he's moved back home to um, Dunoon and is getting himself sorted out there. He's very much involved with the SNP Commonweal Group. So um, that's our board of directors. And then the next slide shows you a picture of um, Professor Fidel Kaboop and Professor Richard Murphy there on our board. Um, we also have a new board, uh, advisory board member, and that's Dirk Entz. I specifically wanted people who were closer to the UK. We don't really have uh, anyone who's a professor in Scotland talking about this at the moment. So, um, yeah, maybe that will come in the future. We're hoping that that will come in the future. So um, the next slide. So um, things that I've learned over the past two years. Um, I've learned about Scottish currency more that that's nothing for us to really worry about. I mean, I lived in the Netherlands when we changed, when the Netherlands changed from the Gulder um, to the Euro. And it literally was one day my bank balance said Gulders and the next day it said Euros. There was, there was no drama. Um, people weren't forced to change right away. Um, so I've been in the situation where I've seen this happen. It really isn't that complicated. And setting up a central bank Again, it's not a complicated thing. The thing that will probably take more time really is actually having paper currency and, and physical currency as well. Other things that I learned as well, the Nairu, the non-accelerating infl inflation rate of unemployment, which is a nefarious concept that it is acceptable that a certain amount or a certain proportion of your population has to remain unemployed in order to keep um, inflation down. That is a complete nonsense in a, a country like the UK, where we have a free-floating fiat currency, there's absolutely no reason why anyone should be unemployed. And um, if anyone's read The Spirit Level and knows anything about this, it has massive toxic societal effects on employment. Um, and also the other thing that I've learned is from what I know um, is that austerity was never necessary. It's always been a political choice. And again, in a country like ours, which is actually quite resource rich, quite advanced with this free floating fiat currency, austerity never needed to happen as well. So that was really, um, yeah, the government killed people. Fundamentally, that's what happened there. Um, so I really want to try and promote heterodox thinking about uh, the economy because the orthodoxy is literally killing people and the planet. So the next slide. So, yeah, we've got some mainstream economists who are saying things to indicate yet yeah, there's something really wrong with the orthodoxy at the moment. And the orthodoxy is guarded. There are, gate, there are academic gatekeepers. And we think really with a lot of disciplines, it's when these gatekeepers retire or die that these ideas will start to be taken over and they'll change. So you'll see this um, quote from American economist Paul Romer, um, who's quite a prominent economist, that their models attribute fluctuations in aggregate variables to imaginary causal forces that are not influenced by the action that any person takes. So this is the concept that people are rational, 
And, you know, it's like economists just don't go outside their front door because, you know, if you know people, people are frequently irrational. And then, um, yeah, Eli Devon says if economists were asked to study horses, they wouldn't go out and look at horses. They would sit in their offices and say to themselves, what would I do if I was a horse? Um, so, yes, the, and underneath that, I've written that the efficient markets hypothesis has been empir empirically disproven. So, yes, there's still this orthodoxy who talk about the markets and that the markets are all dominant. And um, there's this there's been this move away from the path for the past 40 years that somehow government has no control over the economy and government has huge control over the, the economy. But it has been a choice. It's been a political choice for politicians to step back from that. And I think it's time that politicians stepped up to the plate and started doing what they have paid to do, which is look after the population and ensure that people live in um, a progressive country which looks after its citizens. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's that slide. So I think I'll move to the next one. So yeah, where's the orthodoxy taking us? Well, we can see, um, you know, there's plenty of empirical data to see that the planet is being destroyed by the orthodoxy. Um, you know, this the, the constant um, desire for growth and the, the people buying things they don't need, um, taking things out of the ground, remodeling them, then burying them again in the ground is, is destroying our planet. Um, people are... There's huge um, problems with depression. There's just so many problems with the orthodoxy and where it's taken us. Um, so, yeah, people are unemployed. We have a situation here in the UK where elderly people are dying in homes because there's not enough carers to look after them. Um, we've seen in Australia from this picture, you know, a swathe of land that is the size of Ireland has been destroyed. Um, and all the flora and fauna that live in that. So... That's just a dreadful situation. And then, yes, austerity has killed people. Unemployment has killed people. It has, it's crushed the dreams of so many people and held so many people back. And then there's a picture there of the floods in southern England, in, uh, sorry, in southern Yorkshire, I should say, where, you know, infrastructure money has just not been spent in other parts of the UK because the UK is the most unequal country in the EU, where London and the southeast are five times as wealthy as the rest of the country. So the next slide is Scotland. So the Growth Commission or Scottish currency, well, you know, I think the Growth Commission, uh, its its ideas on Scottish uh, currency are nonsense. Um, we need to have a Scottish currency as soon as practicable, as Tim Ryder says, after independence, because Currency is fundamentally the tool that your politicians then use once you, they've, you've asked your politicians to do something, they then use the currency tool to go and make that happen. Um, so it's really important that people remember that fundamentally the, the government creates the currency. So the government has to spend the currency out into existence via its civil service, via things that it buys. And then it taxes it back. That's fundamentally what happens in a modern economy where you have a free-floating fiat currency. We need our own currency in Scotland as quickly as possible so that we can mobilise our people to do the things in Scotland that we want to happen. So the next slide, debunking the orthodoxy. Um, so, yeah, we... we we want to debunk debunk the orthodoxy. We want to debunk 
the, the thinking about unemployment, the thinking about austerity, the thinking about Scottish currency, um, and also another uh, um, uh, thing that I want to debunk is um, tax, taxation, because I'm sure some of you will have questions about that. But fundamentally, taxation is not about collecting money to then, for then governments to spend, because really government spending is like double entry bookkeeping. You know, the, the taxation is really money destroyed. The purpose of taxation is really more about social engineering and ensuring that there's not too much money flowing around in the economy and creating inflation. Um, purpose of tax taxation is it, on a national level. I don't mean at a Scottish level and I don't mean at a council level. At these levels, it is important for funding things, but at a UK level, it's not. So this is just a little bit about our website. There's lots of different things on the website. Um, our, the first paper I wrote was about the language around um, currency. I feel that after I've learned the language around currency and government funding is completely wrong because you can't talk about a government debt. A government is not in debt in its own currency. It is the monopoly issuer of the currency. It can't be in debt in its own currency. There are, of course, consequences if it spends too much out into the economy and if it spends on the wrong things, there are consequences. But fundamentally, the government can't run out of money, but it can run out of real resources and it can create inflation if it spends in the wrong way. These are the things that we have to be concerned about as citizens and politicians as well. So we've written some other things about GERS. Um, we've written about government borrowing and I've got a few podcasts up there now as well. So that's the 10 slides that I wanted to show you. Has anyone got any questions about those? Hi, Karen. That, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I personally um, uh, I'm going to be a bit selfish here and, and, and ask the first question as, as chair, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, and it, it relates to um, uh, an article that came out on Sunday. Uh, an interview with Andrew Wilson. Um, yeah, and I was going, yeah, I know. I, I thought that might raise a few rise now. Uh, an independent Scotland would need to make legacy and solidarity payments to uh, the UK Treasury following independence. In 2014, it was categorical that an independent Scotland wouldn't have any legacy um, uh, debt from, from the UK because that would be the continuing state. Can you tell me, well, first of all, what's he thinking about? And two, why is that utter nonsense? Why it's complete nonsense is because the government in the UK neither has pounds or doesn't have pounds. It really is the scorekeeper for the pound. It's the scorekeeper for the pound. That's another way of thinking about it. It's not, you know, it creates, it's the monopoly issue of the currency. It's not something that we've taken from them um, and we have to give back to them. It's a, a political tool. It's, you know, it's like water is for people to live. It's, it's something that's going to move resources around. It's going to create resources. It's not something that, you know, the, the, gov the government in the UK can make as many pounds as it wants. But, you know, as far as um, debts at the end, you're really talking about things like embassies um, across the world, you know, you know, really when it comes down to it will be real resources we'll be looking at splitting and the, the real resources that are here in Scotland by the Vienna Convention we'd just be keeping those real resources um, 
And then the resources that they have abroad, yeah, we, we might negotiate a share of those embassies. It just depends who's going to do the negotiations at the time and how good a negotiator they are, I would say. Um, so, but money, no, we're not paying any pounds back. <laughs> they can make as much pounds as they want. That's just complete nonsense. No, we're not paying pounds back. And, and anyone who thinks that they've got to negotiate and pay back pounds to the UK Treasury, that's just nonsense. No. Okay. Is that, is that clear why that's nonsense? Well, as, I mean, I, I must confess, Karen. I mean, when it comes to um, uh, finances and, and, and the economy, I kind of glaze over a little bit because I'm, I, it's, it's one of these um, subject areas that, that, I, that I'm weak on. And that's why I'm personally interested in coming to this talk and finding out a little bit more. Because as you say, you've learned, you, you've had that journey. You've had to find out what what economics actually is and what it means for a functioning state i have to go on that journey as well and what you said from the outset in your introduction you want to give us activists a toolkit so yes it does make sense um it's how i go and say that to um to my no voting friends how do i say look you know this is why we need a currency this is how easy it'll be and how how why articles like um um uh, the one on sunday um, he's still peddling this, this sterilisation thing which I find just bizarre um, given yeah. that that was one of the main sticking points in 2014 um, so yeah it, it, it's, it's important to, to understand you know exactly why we won't be making any reparations <laughs> no, no. well not, not as far as not as far as money is concerned because money is not something that the UK government can run out of it's really important to remember it can't run out. And, and and another thing that I sh there's a list of things that I've got in economics in five minutes a little sheet that I wrote um so there's there's things that that, that maybe are very fundamental that I learned right at the start so money is worthless right? Money's worthless. A lot of people are not aware that the gold standard stopped in 1971 now. So money is a promise to pay. That's all it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's the government's debt. So, but their debt is our surplus. You know, government money that's spent out enough. I, I, this is very clear to me as someone who works for themselves and also has clients who are civil servants. The government in the UK pays the Scottish government, they pay their civil servants, they come to me as clients, I take their money, I buy my messages and pay my rent, and then at the end of every year I do tax return. And if the, 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 if the um, HMRC deem that I've earned too much, um, they tax me. And I would say they overtax me. So money's worthless. It's not been backed by gold since 1971. And that's a thing that I think vast majority of the population don't remember, don't know. Um, so money doesn't grow off of trees. Yes, that's right. It's clicked off a computer keyboard at the Bank of England. You know, you're talking money really is a double entry bookkeeping system at a special spreadsheet at the Bank of England. That's what money is. Now you've got your physical money. That's obviously we've got less and less of that now because most money is digital. So, yeah, money doesn't grow on trees. That's, that's how money works really nowadays, especially you can see that in a digital world as well. Other things that are um, tropes. 
Bank of England is independent. No, the Bank of England is not independent. It is a creature of the state. All central banks are creatures of the state. So when you say Bank of England, you could just as easily say the government. So, you know, these accounting measures between the Treasury and the central bank, that is all they are. They are accounting measures. They're convoluted accounting measures. The creation of bonds, the buying of bonds. This is all just double entry bookkeeping, really. So moneyness, that's another thing that I learned as well. What's got the highest degree of moneyness? So the highest degree of moneyness is your government money. It is always backed. You know, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have £85,000 to put in a bank account, um, that's guaranteed in any normal commercial bank in this country. If you've got more than that, and you don't want to invest it in the stock market, your safest place to put it is in government bonds. Government bonds, they are essentially a deposit account at the Bank of England. So that's people with a lot of money or, you know, for example, um, uh, what am I looking for? Pensions. They're, they're putting some of their money, I know someone that works at a pension company, they're putting about 30 to 40% of their money into bonds as well, because bonds are the safest place to put large amounts of money. So currently, they're paying a very small amount of interest. I think we're going to negative interest. So the Bank of England is now charging wealthy institutions and wealthy people to rest their money in their deposit account. That is what bonds are. It's a deposit account at the Bank of England, fundamentally. So the government is the highest degree of moneyness. You can always make money, forms of money in different ways, but it's um, getting accepted. So, you know, I can use my business cards and say, go and do something for me and give a business card. But someone's going to say, I'm not doing that for a business card. Your business card's worthless. But I could make an exchange in a different way. So um, Bitcoin's another form of money as well. But you know, it's not backed by the government. So if you lose your Bitcoin, you're not going to get it back. It's really a token um, that doesn't have any way of backing it. So up to £85,000, your money's guaranteed, insured by the government. And then over that, then it stays in the government coffers, essentially. Your grandchildren don't have to pay. This is another trope. No, this is complete nonsense. The Bank of England's never gone bust. It's never going to go bust. Not in its own currency. Mistakes that government makes is are to, to borrow in a different currency. That's when you're going to have a problem. But the UK government doesn't have that problem. It has borrowed dollars in the past. It went to the IMF in the 1970s. This was vanity. This wasn't something that was required. It was vanity to keep up the value of the pound. And that was why they went to the IMF to borrow dollars. They didn't need to do it. They should have let the free floating currency just float. It would have floated up and down as free floating currencies do. And often it makes very little material difference to the economy. But the, the politicians are not always au fait with this. So the other, the other things that I learned as well are markets. There's just way too much emphasis on the money markets and how they're in control. They're not in control. We in, the governments interact with the markets. There's an interaction going on there. So that's, that's something to bear in mind as well. The other thing that I want to really put across to people, and this should be obvious now with COVID-19, is resilience. 
that you know your economy has to have a certain amount of resilience in it and we've seen this now with COVID-19 where essential things that you know supply chains were very fragile very distant that was a problem when we needed PPE when you have things that you need to have in your country perhaps you need to be either making them in your country or making them somewhere very close by as well it's not possible in the modern world I don't think to make everything or practical to make everything that you need in your country in your country but it's probably important that you make sure that the essentials are 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 in your country being made in your country or close by and then luxuries they are what they are they are the things that are you know perhaps causing climate change to a great extent um and i just want to these are these are the main things that i've learned over the past two years and kenneth galbraith john kenneth kenneth galbraith said um do not be alarmed by simplification because complexity is often a device for claiming sophistication or for evading simple truths. And really, I would say there are people who have very vested interests in trying to pretend that economics is very, very complex. But, you know, there are some basic truths when you come right down to it. And that aspect about resilience is one of them. So that's my economics in five minutes. I wanted to go through that before we go any further. So Thanks. please, yeah, more questions. Thank you, Karen. Um, is there any way you can share that paper um, in the yeah. comments? Uh, that, that, yeah, that... I'll send it to you. Okay, I've got one person with their hand up, um, but before I come to yourself, David, um, Councillor Paul McLennan, um, a politician who is okay with, the, uh, with, 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 with finances, um, would like to ask you a question. Paul. Kieran, thanks for that. A couple of questions, I think, for me. And, and first, I think, it, it, uh, to say right at the start, I'm, I'm very supportive of the Scottish currency. I, I think if we go down the sterilisation route, it, it's not true independence. It, it, it won't be. It'd be a no, step it's, in the, no it's not. But a couple of things. One was around about the Scottish Reserve Bank. Now, you've probably seen there's a couple of motions probably going to SNP conference and yes. I, I know there's a, a website which I'm looking just now and, and Professor Zaydow kind of set seven tests rather than the six tests that were set out with the Growth Commission he set out seven tests that we think we should be looking towards a Scottish currency. One was was talking around about obviously getting the Reserve Bank up and running and how quick that would be to established. There obviously then has to be a, a regulatory framework around about that so there's obviously going to be a, a time scale to get that set up. And, and the third thing, obviously, in, in that regard, and one of the key things is we, we have to continue. And Scotland um, has always succeeded in, in getting inward investment. And one of the big fallacies around about the independence referendum was in 2014, inward investment fell off the, the, the end of the earth. If you look at inward investment in the last 10 years, the year that got the biggest level of investment is 2014. Uh, and, and, and again, that's, that's debunking another myth. So it's looking around about, one, the Reserve Bank, we need to get that up and running as soon as, as well as a regulatory framework, and that's set out by Professor Ryder himself. The second thing, obviously, is around about getting institutional investment, because it does, you know, any size of country, you obviously need institutional investment, and then you are talking about the pension funds and people investing into Scotland and so on, and how, and, and that then comes down to the credit ratings, and again, is, is you know, do we have a, a credit rate? And I know there's been a an indicative credit rating for Scotland, which was BAAA. So, but it's almost. You've got a lot of themes. Can I just write down? So, yeah. um, you want to know about the credit rating? So, we we just had Warren Mosler, also a banker, talk about this, and I asked him about this because this is topical. Yeah. Uh, the credit ratings, and uh, 
has anyone seen The Big Short? Yeah, best film I've seen. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. It's I've watched it umpteen times. Great film. So, you know, uh, the credit ratings agencies, I wouldn't put too much store on what they say. You know, they have vested interests. So, yeah, I think there's too much store put on what the credit ratings agencies say. So, um, also as well, what Warren pointed out is that do they do their credit ratings depending on whether the countries are want to pay back the money or can pay back the money? And that's not clear as well because Japan defaulted, but it shows that was that was just after the war. But it made that choice. It could have paid back reparations. It just said, "I'm not going to." So, so that was a choice, you know. And Japan, I don't know if people realise this, it's running a deficit that's about 250 percent of GDP, and um, you know, so. Japan's okay, it's, you know, it's not falling through the earth. Um, so, yeah, the ratings agencies, inward investment. You've got to be careful with this as well. I mean, first and foremost, what we want to do in Scotland is we want to have an equitable society. I think most people here would want that, right? We want, we want for example, enough nurses to look after people when they're sick, enough doctors to look after, enough people to educate our children, Um People shouldn't die in their houses of cold. People shouldn't die through hunger. These are things that we can all stop happening right away. Important sovereignties to have as a country, really important sovereignties. First, our energy. Now, we have an embarrassment of energy in Scotland. We will be exporting energy when we're independent. We already are. We've been exporting since we had hydro. So we've already been exporting energy and our, uh, our renewables are coming up stronger and stronger all the time. So energy is one of the most important sovereignties. The other support, important sovereignty is food sovereignty. Scotland, as far as I understand it from what I've read, is food sovereign. The UK isn't food sovereign, but Scotland's food sovereign. Remember, we've got 60% of the UK's fishing waters. Then we've got agriculture on top of that, and we've got 8% of the UK population. So by... By that alone, you can see that we don't have a shortage of food in Scotland for the folk that live in Scotland. Um, we've got 90% of the fresh water of the UK in Scotland. Do I have a problem drinking? We're not going to get dehydrated in Scotland. <laughs> the other important thing for our sovereignty is to have an educated population. We have 47% of our population are educated to college or degree level here. So, you know, we can do things. We're pretty well qualified to do things. I mean, certainly if you look at Business for Scotland, they've done massive research on what our resources are, our real resources. And our real resources are, you know, you can see from just the fantastic stuff that happens in Scotland that so many people just are not aware of because it's not talked up nearly enough in the mainstream media. But, you know, for example, the satellite industry in Glasgow is the biggest satellite industry in Europe. You know, our universities, I went to Dundee University. Dundee University is rated above MIT in America. They're 300 million and we are five. You know, people have no idea how successful Scotland is. And there's a reason why they've no, no idea. We know what that reason is. <laughs> so there's just so much that we've got going for us. I don't think we should eschew inward investment, but you've got to be careful that people are not coming over here and extracting real value from the Scots. And that's, you know, we've got to make sure that our, our people are, you know, 
we've got everything going for our people first and foremost. I mean, certainly living in the Netherlands, a small country with an obscure currency called the Gulder, they had everything, they all, their ducks were in place. I mean, when I went to work there, they've got a situation where if you become unemployed, you get 70% of your last wage and then it's reduced down gradually. So you get used to living on less money. And if you know you can't work to the same extent that you were before, you have time to reduce your, your living standard to do that. Um, you get paid to have your holidays. Not only do you get holiday pay, you get money to enjoy your holiday with. Um, but since the euro, things have changed in the Netherlands. And I know that my friends, they are paying three times as much as they did for their healthcare bills because, of course, the European Central Bank insists on a 3% deficit. And that's a complete nonsense. And that was just some random Mandarin that worked for Mitterrand that said, just, just make it 3%. It doesn't get any real sense to it. And it doesn't apply to every country in the European Union. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, something to think about as well. I've seen a big change in the Netherlands since the Euros come in. Um, so, yeah, what size should your deficit be? It's just going to depend on what your requirements are. And is it a problem? Not always. Most of the time, not. Um, it's, again, your real concerns for the politicians are, you know, runaway inflation. You don't want that. That's going to make you very unpopular. It's not always really a problem economically, but it's very much a problem politically. Yeah, um, I, I suppose, Karen, when it's, because, I mean, hopefully if you get, you know, we'll get the situation next year, there's a pro ending majority in the parliament, you, you legislate for a, 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 a referendum, and you could be looking at a referendum three or four months after that. And, and my, my fear is that, you know, yeah, everybody supports the Scottish currency. We win the argument, but logistically, we're not ready, and we have to be ready. And that's where we're saying there has to be a reserve bank set up. There has to be that, that regulatory framework set up. And, and it's almost getting to that because we could we could win the argument, but it's going to take a it's going to take a, a, a period of time to get the logistical stuff set up, and we need to do that. You know, so we win the argument, and I suppose is yeah. it, politically we need to make sure that uh, politicians, pro ended politicians, are, are assured of that. And 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 that's not the 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 sexy side of it. You know, the sexy side is winning the argument, we go, but but we need the reserve bank set up. We need the regulatory framework set up. So if we win that argument, it's pushing the button, and the currency's done, and off we go, kind of stuff. So I suppose the question was around about you know, I, I know it's been raised at the SNP conference. But we need to keep on pushing that as, as well, that we have that ready to go. You know that Tim is busy with that and he's yeah. got people in his group. They're all busy writing the legislation. I, so it's ready to go as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, but that, that was a very good point. One of the things that you said there, Karen, I was reminded of um, uh, the, the, the uh, Jimmy Reid and his um, Scotland's most untapped resource is um, is its people on paraphrase. Absolutely. And I've got one of his quotes actually in one of my papers that I'm writing. I'm writing a, 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 an article to go with the job guarantee paper and he talks about the tragedy of unfulfilled potential. Unemployment is, is a tragedy of unfulfilled potential. Do you know that they calculate the unemployment, you know, unemployment in the States kept at about 3 to 5%. There's 300 million people in the States. That's a lot of people are unemployed. It's estimated to cost the States about a billion dollars a day. I can imagine. Um, yeah. I, I can only imagine. And I'm, I'm hoping for a, a better result next month so that, that, that someone can actually tackle that. I'm going to come to David Munford. So, David. And I have three sort of anxieties. Um, I agree entirely that we need an independent currency. Otherwise, we can't have borrowing powers. 
can we can't have the possibility of um, uh, running the economy the way that we, we actually want it to. But if we, if we have an independent currency, then we're going to need some form of currency reserve, um, both to ward off speculation and, and to cope with um, um, variations in, in our balance of payments. So my first query is, um, what are the best ways of putting putting a currency reserve uh, to, to, together? I know that Commonweal have writ written a reasonable amount on uh, this, um, but it, it is something that concerns me. So Second, you'll automatically have a reserve once you change your Scottish currency with your sterling. So um, Tim estimates that this, the <clears> reserve formed by changing your Scottish currency over for sterling, the sterling will be held at the Central Scottish Reserve Bank, will total about 40 billion to start off with. He thinks it'll go up to about 80. That's his calculation. The other ma 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 major worry is um, I'll accept that money is what money, money does. Um, but you can have a government that says, right, um, you, you've borrowed 85,000, we'll pay you 85,000 back. But if you get raging inflation like Zimbabwe or sort of Weimar Germany, that 85,000 um, three months down the line, that doesn't buy you anything. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I still think there's a range of issues that need, need uh, sorting. Okay, so yeah, the, the, the Zimbabwe and the Weimar Republic are quoted to MMT folk all the time. What you have to remember with the Weimar Republic in Zimbabwe wasn't the creation of currency that caused the inflation. The, they created currency, the politicians created currency to try and put a stick in plaster on the inflation. But the inflation was caused by a loss of resources. In the case of the Weimar Republic, it was a loss of lots of able-bodied men, a huge swathe of their industrial heartland was taken over by um, uh, Belgium and France. Um, and then in the case of Zimbabwe, you know, you had a, a political leader who said, right, these farms that the white men have been running, I'm going to give them to my freedom fighters. And he gave the farms to the freedom fighters, but the freedom fighters had no idea how to farm. So pretty soon the breadbasket of Africa became became dry and you know if you can't feed your people they can't work and if they can't work they can't produce so that was that was the loss of resources that causes the inflation the politicians were trying their best to do something about it by creating a currency but of course currency is not a resource that's what they they don't understand a lot of the time currency is not a resource they've got to make sure real resources are in place so you know you needed to get the farming right go back to the source and get the farming sorted out first and foremost you know in the case of Zimbabwe you maybe have to bring back some of those white farmers as advisors and pay them lots of money and um, you know the Weimar Republic yeah I don't know what you could have done about that because that was really a war um, and wars or wars will definitely cause hyperinflation of course obviously okay thank you Kieran um what, what I just want to say to folk is we've probably got about 15 minutes left of questions so if you have questions please do put your hand up in the um, participants uh, function at the bottom of the screen and uh, and, and we'll do, your, do our best to get you in. Um, Colin, Colin Frank Jackson you, ha you have a question for Karen. Karen uh, thank you very much for it. It's a, it's a fascinating presentation I'm really glad I, I tuned in. Um, 
the, the one thing I can't help thinking that, that, that uh, if, if, if this SMP's minds can be changed about this uh, sustainable growth commission um, situation regarding the currency, uh, I think then we, once they get behind it, then, you know, things will start to move. Uh, people like yourself um, coming round to doing Zoom events, say at SMP branches, uh, what would help? Uh, and and uh, I know that uh, I'm, I'm well aware of uh, Tim Rideout's uh, work. I've been to some of his presentations, and I, I agree with you. He, he is a hero and a, a potential hero, certainly, because if he can turn this round, uh, we, you know, we'll really be on the way. Tim, Tim's Tim's resolution was accepted in 2019. I, I'm I'm I'm. I'm really hoping that we can make progress at the next conference uh, uh, by, uh, by passing the latest resolution. Um, right, uh, as it happens, I don't, um, I've, I've got one other person who, who, who does want to ask a question. Um, but it's incredibly easy for people to spit all kinds of scare stories about the whole process of converted to new currency. Um, I think what you've said about the experience of people in the Eurozone about how easy it actually is, that if the conversion is actually just done by the bank, it's not actually a traumatic process for individuals, is, is very helpful. But can you just uh, say a bit more about that, about the actual practicalities of what it's like for the ordinary person um, when they when they have to, there have to be a date when the currency will convert? Um, so for me at the time living in the Netherlands, um, really, it, there wasn't really anything for me to do. You, you're literally told that, you know, one day you're going to have your currency that you've got in your bank account denominated in one currency and the next day it's going to be another case and it's just changed one for one you know people would complain in the Netherlands oh things are getting more expensive under the euro um, and but that settled down after a while and it didn't really massively affect my life but you know of course it's going to affect people who import export you know a valuable currency is going to be you know good good for um, uh, importers exporters not so good so, you know, there's always going to be a balance between trying to please all sections of society, importers and exporters included. OK, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Um, Marlene, Marlene from uh, Independence Live Radio has, has a question for you. Hi. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris. And yeah, thanks for your talk, uh, Kieran. It's uh, interesting. So so my, my question is about... Um, that you know, Scotland's a country that we know about two thirds of us Correct. want to rejoin the EU at, at some point. Maybe not immediately. Maybe we go to EFTA, EEA to begin with, but at some point. But as I understand it, you cannot join the EU unless you have your own independent currency. So, so what? So, so then I'm always puzzled when I see someone like Andrew Wilson or or other people talking about, you know, a long time, a ten year. Uh, Currency union or sterilisation, but 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 that doesn't really seem to get picked up by them. But so, so you're nodding your head. So it sounds like I was right with that uh, with that uh, thought. Yeah, yeah. You have to have your own currency before you can join um, the EU. You've got to have your own currency going. You can't join. We 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 couldn't join if we were using sterling. 
So, yeah, that's no use for the people that want to get back in the European Union. No use at all. So it's a basic. So, so there's a basic dilemma there then for for the SNP if they keep following that um, option. It's a basic dilemma for Andrew Wilson. I think. I think there's a lot of people. Well, I mean, I I was at the vote last last year. You know, the majority yeah, yeah, of people voted against the Growth yeah. Commission. So, and it's certainly, I would say that feeling is wider in the wider yes movement as well. And I think. You know, Tim is doing such a good job of promoting the concept, and he's he's so knowledgeable about this. And uh, yeah, he's you know, people are coming around to that. I think. Um, Isabel, Isabel made a wee comment in the comment section. Uh, I'm blown away by everything you've said tonight, Karen. Thank you for doing all the research on all our behalfs. Do you think that this is helping you as an activist now that you've had, you know, have a, a bust, I mean, especially the thing about the gold standard. I think a lot of people, you know, I hadn't really considered it. I just hadn't thought about it until I decided I had to find out about it. Aye, and, aye. You know, um, I didn't fa- really fancy learning about economics, but actually now that I've started, I'm, I'm thriving. I love it. I think it's fascinating. The one thing I did learn when uh, I was uh, doing the OU thing with the, the politics was that, um, that everything comes down to economics. I mean, uh, politics is driven by economics and economics is just behind all aspects of our lives. So, um, I mean, I am, well, embarrassed to say that I probably don't take as much of an interest in it as I should, but it's brilliant that other people are. <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, the one thing that did uh, occur to me, though, was um, would it be worth our while joining the euro, basically? And, uh, you know, that's just a kind of off the top of the head question. No, I wouldn't do it. I, would, I mean, if we gain monetary and fiscal sovereignty, I wouldn't be giving it up again. I don't want yeah. to go to the European bank and ask for money. And and if they, you know, they they have a rule of this 3% rule across the board and we need to have full fiscal monetary sovereignty to be sovereign. Um, You can be in the European Union, but you don't need to to join, you don't need to join the Eurozone. You have to use the Euro. And the UK doesn't. And Sweden doesn't. And other countries don't. In fact, there's 27 countries in the European Union. 19 of them use the Euro. So there's... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, eight countries. Two thirds. Two thirds are in the euro, kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. countries like Norway are managing fine with their own currency, certainly. Uh, yeah, on the euro, um, I thought it was a very. It's it's also a very good rebuttal to those who say, "Oh, you want to you want to um, uh, give up give up um, your your union with uh, Westminster only to join another union." And well, hang on a minute, there are different options there, so. Um, that's always a good one to have. Um, uh, Fraser's come on and, and asked, and if you um, if you don't mind, I'll ask the question on his behalf, just to keep things um, running on. Um, <laughs> very, very straightforward question. How do we ditch Andrew Wilson? I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just a matter of keeping on um, rebutting what he's saying, um, keep re- rebutting what he's saying. Is it clear now why, is, is anyone not clear why what he's saying, we need sovereignty with our currency. We're not independent if we have to go cap in hand, either to the Bank of England or to the European Central Bank. We, the currency is the tool which enacts political policy. The government creates the currency 
It asks the central bank to credit the bank accounts it needs credited in the hospitals. In the case of the UK, it's paying money into the Scottish government's coffers. It pays money into the councils. It pays money to hospitals. And it credits their accounts and they spend that money and a percentage of it is taxed back again. It's tax returned, money returned. So, you know, the the, the government spends first and then the money comes back via tax. I would argue that the working classes and the middle classes are taxed way too much, though. Karen, sorry, sorry to. Um, why do you think he gets such airtime, such press? Why, why do you think he, you know he's got such kudos within the within the the yes movement and contacts? And... <laughs> he's been in the movement for a long time. I think that he's well-meaning and I think he completely believes in what he believes. He said that he studied MMT, but, you know, he clearly hasn't. I think if he he, he studied it, he would agree with it. Um, but, you know, MMT is not a policy. This is a common thing that you're hearing. And, and he says something, oh, if we implement MMT. And, you know, Tim made this very clear it, it, it beautifully, beautifully. M- MMT is like gravity. It exists. This MMT is just an modern monetary theory is just an observation of how governments run their accounts and it's saying there's more fiscal space than a lot of politicians realise. And, you know, 150 years ago, 95% of our population were working on farms. You know, but we're in a situation now where about 1% of our population are producing the food, 7% in manufacturing, and the rest of the people are in service industries. And a lot of that, you know, like, for example, bars and restaurants that are closing down just now. You know, really, I would say in advanced economies, we need to be spending more money on educating people and caring for people because we can, because because the other stuff's all been done. We've got that sorted. And that's why we've still got food in the shops, because that's all been so mechanised now that those things are very readily available in advanced economies. So, yeah, this... The, the way that things are being run just now is just dreadful. And people are dying. The planet's burning. We've got to rebel against it. You know, or, or you know, we're, we're either going to be affected by horrible climate change in, in our dotage or our children are, or, or, you know, in my case, my nephews. So, sorry, I ranted a wee bit there. Quite all right. Quite all right. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> a good rant, I guess. <laughs> Okay. Um, on that, um, that that does bring us neatly to time. Um, personally, Kieran, that has been illuminating, and I want to, uh, on behalf of everyone here and everyone that's that's attended this evening, I want to say thank you. Can I also just say, um, yeah, if you think that you want me to come and do this talk to other places, then do. The other thing that I'm doing as well is I'm very keen on common wheel research. So, as I said, I've become the coordinator for the Commonweal SNP group as well. We want to uh, work on policy to, that is, um, you know, for me, green, left-wing, I would describe it maybe, progressive. So, yeah, that's those are the kind of policy areas that I want to go into. So that's why I'm going to do that. So if you want me to come and talk about that as well, very happy to do that too. Thank you, everybody, and thank you very much, Karen, for a, for a fascinating talk. Um, yes, Dunbar is really incredibly grateful for a whole range of speakers who've addressed us from a wide range of political viewpoints, and during this lockdown period, it's been great to be able to do this sort of thing. would just like to share for everybody, um, particularly for those of you who are actually in the Dunbar area, I know there are some people further afield, um, 
that there is quite a lot we're doing. We um, did some uh, postcard work um, last month um, on the um, sixth anniversary of the original referendum. Uh, we managed to leaflet quite a proportion of homes in Dunbar uh, with a card specially designed for Yes Dunbar explaining about the chaos of where we are at and in particular the whole implications of us being forced out of the European Union and the consequences of that. Obviously, we now know we're facing not just Brexit, an incredibly hard Brexit um, at the 31st of December. Um, and the consequences of that are very, very uh, in serious indeed. Uh, Isabel's just holding up the postcards that we distributed. Thanks very much for that, Isabel. So thank you for those who helped with that. I want to say that we are planning a further leafleting campaign, um, probably around um, late November, probably around uh, St Andrew's time. And so we'll be circulating people and asking volunteers to help with that. But it really is worthwhile. And I'd particularly like to say welcome to three or four, three or four people who've actually joined just Dunbar as a result of those cards. I'm not sure whether I see any of the new names here tonight, uh, but it certainly does show that it's actually um, uh, having some work and some influence. Um, so, so thank you very much. Okay, just to say thank you all again for attending this. Um, uh, please do look out for the mail shots that come out from Gareth. They are brilliantly written and uh, fascinating content as well. Um, please do come and get involved in uh, Yes Dunbar activities. Um, as Gareth says, next year is going to be a very interesting uh, year with the general election and we will need as many boots on the ground as we can in a non-party political way. Excuse me, Chris because we are we are um we're quite equitable in um yes Dunbar with some uh, green smp and isp members uh on on the committee so um um yeah with that thank you all again well done Dunbar. you've been listening to the latest of our series of programs yes group spotlight this week's spotlight was on Yes Dunbar, and we just want to say again that uh, we really appreciate that they've given us permission to record and broadcast the event with Karen von Sweden talking about the importance of a Scottish currency. If you want to check back in anything that uh, Karen said, you'll be able to find this talk on our SoundCloud channel. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for indylive.radio. Thanks for listening.